Uh, my name's Anne, if you don't know who I am, I'm not normally up here singing and dancing, I'm very reserved and very British, but today felt like a, a special day and worth letting it loose a bit. Um, so, uh, today, unlike last time, if you were here, I'm going to have a short preach. Last time I preached a bit of an epic, uh, but it's going to be pretty brief today. I just want to talk about what it means to be diverse and at the same time what it means to be one in Jesus. So, uh, me and my family live in Oxy Lane, and... Um, there's a 30 mile an hour speed limit right outside our, our sort of driveway. We live in a little courtyard and on the driveway, it goes onto Oxy Lane, 30 mile an hour speed limit. But because it's such an open road, Oxy Lane, and feel guilty if you're one of the people that do this, people hack down it at least 50 a lot of the time because it just looks like a big open country lane, um, which makes it really dangerous and difficult for us to get across the road to go to the station or to take the dog for a walk. So we have to kind of take our lives in our hands. Um, and about 400 yards further down the road, um, by the load of hay pub, they put a speed camera in, if you can see it there. That's just down the road from us. And you hear the engine slow down as they approach the speed camera and then kind of speed up again if they can, if they're going in the right direction. Uh, so there's a question. It's sort of, you know you're speeding. Everyone knows they're speeding. But when the speed camera appears, something triggers it says, right, now I'm conscious that if I carry on, I'm going to get caught. So I'm fine breaking the law when no one's, when there's no punishment, but the moment the speed camera appears, there is a penalty, and therefore I change my behavior because I, I may get caught breaking the law. And the question here really for me is, though guilty though many of us may be in this, why is it we only behave when the punishment is suddenly clear? Why is it that we don't behave correctly because it's a safety issue? Because I can tell you as someone who lives in that house, it's very dangerous trying to get, I come across the road sometimes and cars come at 50. I have no time to get out of the way. I've dragged my dog across the road because she's going to get killed because people are doing 50 until the speed camera appears and then they'll do 30. We've asked the council, they won't put one in, but it seems we behave very differently when we're clear of the consequences. And keep that in mind because we're in a, in a book called Galatians, a letter called Galatians in the Bible written by the Apostle Paul. And without repeating the message, because it, is, is it does have a repetitive message, um, which is a good thing in many ways. But just to quickly recap, um, Paul, is, Paul in this letter is addressing uh, new Christians or a Christian community that have kind of been uh, infiltrated or affected by a group of uh, Christian Jews called Judaizers who are trying to bring back the old Mosaic law. So sort of saying, you need to do all these things to be right with God. It's not just you can be saved by Jesus Christ. There's a bunch of stuff you need to do. Um, and you need to uphold the law of Moses uh, or many parts of it in order to see, be seen right with God. And Paul, who himself was once a Jewish Pharisee, so he knows the law, expert in the law, is challenging them saying, no, that's not correct. Jesus has come and therefore there is no need for that. It's salvation through faith in Christ and Christ alone. But because of that, because of that truth that we live in, we can sometimes look on the law of Moses with a little bit of disdain. Like that's a really negative, bad thing. We just need to forget that and ignore it because now we have Jesus. And I can ask you the question, what came first? If you know your Bible, the law or Jesus? The law or Jesus, which comes first? The law comes first through Moses in time, in historical time it comes first. So the law comes to Moses and then later comes Jesus. So we can often think, well, just get rid of that. Then we don't really need it anymore. Let's just cast that thing out because Jesus has come and we, we don't need the law. That's not quite the full story, though. And I think modern evangelical Christians, of which we're part of, uh, I always pictures my picture, Americans saying, put your hand against the screen when I say evangelical, but, but, you know, we're modern evangelical Christians. We can come a little unstuck because 
That thinking means we spend all our time in the New Testament, all our time in the story of Jesus, and none of our time looking backwards. We love the story of salvation, but we miss the full story of the Bible. Because the Bible is a New Testament, the life of Jesus, and an Old Testament, the life before Jesus, from creation through to Jesus coming, and what God was doing in that time to kind of bring instruction to a whole nation, and just to ignore it because it's now gone, is where we can come unstuck. We love that story, you miss the story, and as a result, our faith can become actually quite shallow because of it, because we have an experiential faith. And the gospel can be quite meek. It's not big, important stuff as it should be. And our worship, unlike today, and I've got an issue, I've got a challenge in myself. We can really get, you know, and, and, and swinging your hands around is not what it means to celebrate Jesus and worship, by the way. But to kind of feel stirred to like really sing it out. That's not common in our church and our churches. Our church is pretty good, but I, you know, it's some Sundays I think, my word, you know, just taking so much kind of trying to, to lift our spirits, not for physical, um, but just in the room. And, and so when we're not understanding what's really happened, sometimes our worship can be quite muted because we're not really responding perhaps in the way we should. So to understand the gospel fully, we have to know what the law of Moses was and how it sits in it. We've got to go back. We've got to go back like 4,000 years. We've got to go back to Abraham, to before Moses. And so very briefly today, I'm going to try and just cover um, the promise, the law, and the Messiah. And I'm going to read to you from Galatians uh, chapter 3, verses 15 to 19. This is Paul writing to the Galatian church. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what it means. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So, as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. So let's talk about the promise briefly. What's that promise about? What is the promise all about? Well, I don't know about you, but we make promises. They're pretty loose. I promise to be there on time. A pinky swear, <laughs> you know, whatever that means. I have no idea why pinky swear is important. Or even I swear by, you know, whatever... And I promise to do this. And, I promise, and those things are often what we say. Paul, Paul is saying, no, this, this is an even more dramatic when he uses the comparison to a human example. Even more dramatic than that. Back then, people made covenants with quite a procedure. They wouldn't have written contracts. So they would often uh, uh, sort of seal a contract by, I know this sounds strange, but splitting an animal in half, putting it either side, linking hands and walking through the middle of it and saying, it is now a covenant agreement and it cannot be broken. And their view was when that agreement is made, that is not going to be changed. It cannot be changed. That's a ratified agreement. However you might feel about that ceremony, that's it. It's done. That cannot now be changed. And those agreements were human examples, but Paul's using it to, to really exemplify what came first was a promise that God made that he would send a saviour. And that promise was made directly to Abraham. And that promise will not change. Whatever might happen between this and that being realised, that will not be changed. That will not be annulled. The promise will hold even uh, 
you know, whatever happens in between. Called an unconditional covenant. God made it directly to Abraham and said, from his line, one would come, the seed, a singular one would come, who would bring salvation to all families and all nations. That's a massive promise. But then Paul knew that if he said that, the people would ask, well, why, you know, well, what's the point of the law then? So he knew, he anticipated. Because 430 years later from Abraham's promise comes the law to Moses. The Ten Commandments, 400, um, 613 laws. And Paul is first saying the law did not replace the promise because the promise God made is covenantal and it will be fulfilled ultimately. And Paul then asked the question, he knows their thinking which is, well, what's the point of the law then? Why do, you bo- why do we bother having it? And Paul says, no, it came because of transgressions. It came because you needed to know how far from God you were drifting, how far from him you were going. No person can uphold the law. They couldn't even uphold the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up Mount Sinai. He's 40 days up there. By the time he gets down, they've built a golden calf and they're breaking those those 10 commandments, never mind the 613 that would come. God's chosen people needed to know that they needed a saviour. And the law was there to show them, these are the things you would have to do in order to be right before me, and you can't do them. And therefore you're going to realise as you try and keep that up, as you try, as you try, as you try, you'll realise eventually, I can't do it, we can't do it. We are flawed, we are failed, we cannot, we need a saviour. Yes, you do. And that's what it was there for. It's to show up that your actions have consequences. So was the law of Moses bad? No, it was not bad. It's not a bad thing. It was good because it showed up transgressions. Paul wants to be clear the law was temporary till the promise, and he uses this phrase in verses 24 and 25, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now the term guardian, I'm terrible at my Greek, but but it looks like pedagogos. Pedagogos is the term that was was used. We've got guardian in some of our Bibles. Some of us have tutor. Some bad translations have schoolmaster. But the law was this kind of schoolmaster, guardian. Actually, the the role of a a pedagogos is, is a slave in a wealthy house who's responsible for making sure the child studies and goes to school and tests them that they are going to school and learning things at school. So there, it's, a, it's a more strict role. Uh, from John Stott's book on it, he says that the pedagogos was often harsh to the point of cruelty and usually depicted in ancient drawings with a rod and a cane in his hand. And what Paul is saying is like a child, for a time you needed a strict guardian to keep you on the right path, but that's a, that was a temporary measure till the right time and that time has now come And Jesus is here. Christ is here. The strict teaching is over under loving discipline of a father. And what's coming now is the love and the gentle spirit of a father. And that's good news. That's good news. So why do we, in this era after Christ has come, not read the Old Testament, not treat it with the same weight as we should? And it's tricky because this is a Sunday of celebration, so I don't want to be overly heavy, but, but... it should not be consigned to the past. We should not leave it as if it's a, it's a thing we don't need to understand or read. Because I think that's a danger, if not a reality, of modern Christianity, of modern faith, which is that we're not that bad. 
We're, we're not doing that bad. We don't murder people, so aren't we good? And you're thinking, no, God once showed what it meant to be good in his sight. He gave 10 plus 613 ways to be right in his sight. And we're like, we're not that bad because I don't, I'm vegan, man. I must be good. You know, it's that kind of stuff. We're just sort of thinking these are the things that will impress God. And God's saying, you need to look at what actually it would take if you want to impress me because no one's been able to do that. They tried for ages and failed. You need a saviour. We need a saviour. We need someone to save us from the sin that separates us. So we don't think we're that bad, so we don't think the gospel is all that great. We don't give it the power and the excitement it needs because we're not that far from it. We think we're just going to kind of work our way in, which is very much going back to our world. We don't see sin the way it was. Sin separates us from God. Sin has become a name of an ice cream range from Magnum. Sin has become S-Y in the name of the things you can eat when you're on the Slimming World diet. You can have some sins. We've kind of downgraded it, downgraded it to ice cream and naughty food. I know it's spelling S-Y, but that's what it means. Sin is not ice cream. Sin is not a dietary allowance. It's that that separates us from a holy God, and we need, we all need a saviour because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We need a saviour, and he has come. His name is Jesus Christ. He lived the life we couldn't lead, kept every law, died the death we should have died, as the ultimate sin sacrifice. Because what happened then, when they broke those laws, they used to sacrifice animals and say, this is what we've done wrong, this is our way of appeasing God. We've sinned, we'll sacrifice this. We'll sin, we'll sacrifice this. Jesus comes and said, you sinned, I'm the sacrifice for all sin. I'll pay everyone's price. So the Messiah, let's finally close with the Messiah. Now through Christ, we are all children of God. Because when we are right with the Father, we can approach him with confidence. And the Bible uses this term, you are adopted as sons and daughters. We sometimes use the word child of God to describe every human being. That is not correct. We are separated from him. And when we accept Jesus Christ, ask for forgiveness of our sins, he says, come back, you're adopted as sons and daughters. You are now a child of God. And in verses 26 and 27, he says, for in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith for as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ now very briefly put on Christ what does that mean I use these terms I have no idea what it means well I've been looking at it one of the things I believe it's about is in the culture of the time when 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 young people young men in particular matured to a certain age 13 or 15 depending on which part of the culture they were they stopped wearing child's clothes and they put on adults clothes that was a, a particular moment. Now you are a man, you're an adult, your identity has changed. You are putting on a new identity. In Christ, we take off our rags, our filthy rags, our sin, and we put on his righteousness. We put on Christ, we take upon us his clothes. So we're no longer under this strict guardian. We've got a father who loves us, who says, I will offer you away, put on Christ, and then the promise is fulfilled. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, the promise has been fulfilled. The law is there to show us how far from it we can drift. So we know we need him. And sometimes if we're very passive about how we feel about Jesus, it might be worth going back to the law once in a while saying, my word, without him, that's what I'd have to do. I'd have no chance. Praise God for Jesus. Praise God for the Savior. And hopefully, let's look at the very last piece and then we're going to do a song and we're going to take communion and we're going to pray. It's a longer service day probably, but we're not far off. 
So, this great line that's often misquoted, I think we've probably covered the second part, the, if you're in Christ, you're of Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, adopted, heirs, wonderful news, you're adopted, you're an heir to the promise that was given to Abraham. That was the promise, what he meant. By your seed, the promise comes, it's Jesus Christ, we accept him, we're adopted, we're now heirs to the promise, eternal life, freedom from sin. Why on earth would you not want that? What, what would make you say, no, that's not for me, I think I can work it out. It will never happen. It will never happen. You will never get right with God in your own strength. Stop trying. It will make you miserable. Accept Jesus Christ. He's the one that's come to pay the price. He's the one that's done the law for you. He's the one that's paid for your sin. Stop trying. It will never work. If that speaks to you today, please come and talk to me after. I'd love to pray with you. Sorry, that was a bit off track, but hey, it's the right thing to say. Um, this phrase, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. I just want to point three things, because that's an often misquoted verse. And there's three sort of things that man, that, that is picking up on three things that even today still become the main things that we just separate each other by. Race and culture and adherence to things, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, wealthy to poor, male nor female. Those things still today separate us in our culture. Things have not changed much. So you've got race prejudice, you've got wealth prejudice, and you've got gender prejudice between male and female. Remember, in that culture, male and female were far, far apart. So Paul is saying, is he saying, well, it doesn't matter. Is that what that means? It doesn't matter that you're male or female. It doesn't matter that you're Jew. No, it's not what it means at all. It's saying you are very different. You are culturally diverse. You are male and female. There is rich and poor. They're all true and they all still exist. And the way you can make that not mean anything is if you come to Christ and realize that in him we are one. In him we are one. In him we are one. There is no difference between me and you, regardless of what I have, regardless of the color of my skin, regardless of where my background is, regardless of my gender. In Christ Jesus, me and you are exactly the same in his sight because we are put on Christ and we are seen in his eyes as Christ's righteousness. That trumps everything I could ever earn, do or successfully do in my own flesh. It's, it's not important when you take this on board. Paul is saying, though, don't, they, yes, they, ma they, don't, they matter, but they don't count. They don't count. When it comes to the end, when God judges the, the living and the dead, they don't count. All that will count is, do you accept Jesus Christ as Lord? Have you accepted him as your saviour? That's all he needs to know. I was English and white. I don't care right now. All I want to know is, did you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and saviour? Yes. Welcome home, Andy. It's amazing. It's amazing. Ephesians 6, it says he shows no partiality. He's talking about masters and servants. Again, culturally in that, you know, you've got the landowners and the, 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 the slaves and the servants. That won't count for nothing because he shows no partiality. These, are, these were cultural bombshells at the time, and they still are really. They should still be in many ways. No race, status, or gender preferred. He called out prejudice while celebrating differences. So I have a warning. Watch out what you post on Facebook. Watch out what you read on Facebook. 
Because what I see a lot on Facebook is people vilifying an entire nation. This nation is bad. This nation is good. That is not one in Christ Jesus. That is not the way God thinks. Because it doesn't count. So be careful. Be careful what you read. Be careful what you post. Be careful what you're looking at. Because there is a, a culture in our world at the moment to divide. I'm sure you can see it happening. I watched a, a, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't encourage everyone to watch it. It's got a lot of foul language. But it's a very powerful film called Black Klansman. Story of a guy infiltrating the Ku Klux Klan. And you realise as they're talking about this, that's exactly what they're saying about Mexico now. There is a culture of division. This race are dirty. This race is clean. It is still present in our culture. And we will stand against it. Amen? Because we are all one in Christ Jesus. So watch what you read. Watch what you post. Watch what you're feeding into because it's trying to get that back. And Jesus died to stop that, to break down the walls of division. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So let's be mindful. John Stott, finally, John Stott in his book put it this way. He said, we now have a three-directional relationship. We have a high relationship reconciled with God. We have a long relationship. We can look back in time to all the brothers and sisters in Christ. All, the, the, all those brothers and sisters in history coming forward to us and into the future. We have a long relationship. And we have a broad relationship. We have a relationship with every Christian of every tribe and every nation. However different, however radically different we might sing, how we might celebrate, we have this broad relationship because we are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Isn't that not great news? Then let's live it. Let's make sure we don't participate in anything that would be against that. Let's make sure we know that and it's exemplified in our behavior. It's great to celebrate our diversity, but let's make sure that we stand for something because in Jesus Christ, he has resolved it all because that was the promise and the promise has been fulfilled in him. 